Hey folks, and welcome to episode 196 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting a new series with Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts on the Song of Songs. With this new series starting up, we are going to be putting a pause on our lectionary discussions for the time being, which Dr. Lightheart will discuss here in just a few moments. In this episode, Peter Lightheart's going to go over the structure of the Song of Songs, as well as the authorship and dating of the book. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion over this book. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes. Today we're doing something new in our podcast. For the last couple of years, we've been following the lectionary and doing a podcast discussion of the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday. Started that out with James Jordan, and then uh, more recently have been doing that with Alistair Roberts. And uh, we're taking a break after two years going through the lectionary. We realize that there's still a year to go in the three-year lectionary cycle. So we may come back to the lectionary at some point and do the final year. But uh, the podcast seemed to be getting repetitive to me. We're going through Advent readings again. They're different Advent readings than they were the previous year, but they're still Advent readings. And we're talking about Advent and talking about the different themes of Advent and uh, largely covering covering uh, the same ground. Uh, so uh, it seemed like a good idea to uh, go off in a different direction. We want to keep uh, the Bible at the center of the, at least this portion of our podcast. We want to do other sorts of podcasts, and we have done. But we want to make the biblical discussion uh, the centerpiece of uh, this uh, main podcast. We have uh, Jim Jordan's uh, lectures that we broadcast send out as podcasts every week, but we want to keep some fresh material going that's uh, based on Scripture and uh, interpretation of Scripture. And so for the next couple of months, at least, uh, we're going to be working through the Song of Songs. Uh, We chose the Song of Songs for a couple of reasons, partly because it's relatively short. It's only eight chapters, and so it's something we can cover in a fairly short period of time in some some depth, and it gives us something to uh, focus on. It's also obviously a, a book about desire, sexuality, uh, and therefore touches on many of the cultural confusions that dominate the present day. And so we thought it might be a good way of getting into some of those discussions about contemporary sexual confusions and cultural confusions, uh, rather than doing it from the perspective of analysis of current events and then try to bring in the Bible, we're going to do it from uh, within biblical interpretation, discussion of biblical texts and then see where that takes us in terms of the contemporary discussions. So Alistair Roberts, as many of you probably know, is uh, set to bring out a book on a theology of sex uh, coming up in, uh, in, uh, in 2019, now that it's 2019. Later this year, that book will be available, uh, airs together, uh, Theology of the Sexes, and he'll be able to bring some of the material for that, uh, from that book and from those studies into our discussion of the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is also a great place to illustrate good reading of Scripture. Uh, the Song of Songs is a highly poetic, uh, densely poetic book, a densely elusive and intertextual book. Uh, it uh, alludes to many other parts of the re- uh, parts of the Bible, and even though it's not 
uh, quoted very directly in the New Testament or referred to directly in the New Testament. Uh, many of the uh, many of the things that occur in the, the, the passage in the Song of Songs has some kind of echo in the New Testament. Um, I pointed this out in my Revelation commentary that there are various places where uh, the book of Revelation is tracking on the Song of Songs. Certain uh, poetic structures in the in the uh, book of Revelation are following the patterns of the Song of Songs. And I think the overall sweep of the book of Revelation is also following the sweep of the Song of Songs. I'll touch on that in just a little bit later today. But um, because, because of the density of the poetry and because of the elusiveness of the Song of Songs, we thought it'd be a good book to study as a way of illustrating uh, good reading of the Bible, how we go about working through the meaning of uh, sometimes obscure texts uh, and try to get some, uh, try to wring some uh, significance and meaning out of it. Uh, today I'm by myself. Um, Brian's running the machine to make sure that this gets recorded. Alistair is not going to be here uh, for this podcast or next week. Uh, he's traveling to the States and he'll be here uh, in uh, uh, going to uh, Monroe, Louisiana for the pastor's conference at uh, Redeemer, uh, the Church of the Redeemer in West Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, we'll be speaking together with Jeff Myers uh, next week, and then we're also having a regional course in Dallas later next week. But then Alistair will be here in Birmingham for several weeks, and we'll be recording the rest of our podcasts for the Song of Songs during that time. So he'll be in on the discussion after the first couple, uh, and that will definitely enrich uh, the the discussion as he brings in his uh, work on the theology of the sexes and his, um, as, uh, as you've come to expect, his uh, deep understanding of the scriptures. But it's left to me to uh, spend a, a bit of time at the beginning of this series uh, today and next week on just kind of introducing the book and what, uh, what the book is about and how it's put together. And I want to cover, cover several different topics. Uh, a couple of them are controverted topics, and I'm not going to go into a great deal of depth on them, but I want to touch on them a little bit. It was the issues of the timing of the book, when was it written, and the author. Uh, what can we tell from what the book asserts, and what can we tell from what the book contains about the author and the timing of the book. And then I want to look at the overall structure of the book, uh, at least in uh, from several different perspectives, and look at how uh, the book is put together and what kind of story the book is telling. Uh, the Song of Songs can appear to be just a random collection of love poems, but I do think, and it's been... Uh, uh, traditional for both Christian and Jewish writers to uh, uh, understand the book as having a ha having a, a overall narrative structure, although it's somewhat obscured. This has been a, a pretty common understanding of the book, so I want to uh, touch on that question. So we asked the question: When it was written and who wrote it? Um, the evidence for the timing of the book is largely based on the internal evidence, the contents of the book. We don't have any external evidence. It doesn't come with a copyright date. But uh, from a couple of different lines of evidence that scholars have used to try to date the book, one of them has to do with the kinds of materials and goods that are mentioned within the book. There's a lot of references to spices in the book, and not just to spices in general, but to very specific spices. And some scholars have tried to date the book by looking at those spices and trying to look at the surrounding situation around, uh, around Israel uh, when would those spices have been available within Israel? And at least some scholars have suggested that that, that kind of consideration argues for an early date. Uh, many of the spices are spices that originate in Arabia. Uh, and uh, around the time of the United Kingdom uh, of Israel, that is around the time of David and Solomon, 
Israel was on the trade routes uh, that would have gone from uh, Arabia uh, or even further east through Arabia and into uh, into Palestine, into Israel. Uh, and so the, the presence of these spices in the book and the suggestion that these spices are in use, at least among the upper classes of Israel, suggests that the uh, book was written at an earlier date. Uh, later on, in the, once you get to the Hellenistic period, the trade routes have changed somewhat, and there's more sea travel and more sea trade. And so the Israel Israel's role as a trading uh, crossroads is not as prominent. That's that's at least one argument for saying that it's an early book. The, the argument for a later date is often made on the basis of the language of the book. It's uh, The Song of Songs contains more unique words than any other book of the Hebrew Bible, even though it's only eight, uh, only eight chapters long. They're not long chapters either. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty short book, and yet it's full of words that occur nowhere else in no other book of the Bible, uh, and words that occur only once in the entire Hebrew Bible. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's an, a very high number of hapaxagomenon, or uh, unique unique uses of Hebrew words that are found in the Song of Songs. That gives the book a kind of exotic flavor. Uh, it's probably a stylistic device where the author is using these words just to contribute to this exotic atmosphere that he wants to create in the book. Um, but uh, the argument is that some of those words are derived from Persian, or at, le- at least at linked also to some Greek words, and so the argument for, uh, as far as date is concerned, would be that these are loan words from Persia. When would Israel have had contact with Persia in order to uh, bring Persian words into, into Hebrew? Words like pardes, uh, paradise, uh, and then even some words that have some parallels, at least with, uh, with, Greek, with Greek terminology. When would that have happened? When would Israel have had that kind of contact with Persia or with Greece? And the argument is that this would have happened only in the Persian period when Persia actually actually uh, ruling over uh, Israel, uh, or even later in the Hellenistic Hellenistic period when uh, the Greeks are uh, the dominant power in Palestine. So uh, the terminology is sometimes used as an as an argument for a later date. Uh, I think those are those are tenuous arguments. I think uh, tenuous arguments because the derivation of different terms is not always secure. You don't know, if you have a parallel between a Hebrew word and a Persian word, you don't know if one is influencing the other, if Hebrew is deriving it from Persian, uh, or if both of the terms are being derived from something more original, that there's a, a word in another language that is uh, contributing to both. Uh, the, you also have at least the theoretical possibility that some words that uh, are picked up in Persian are originally from from Israelite Hebrew. That is, the direction of influence might go the other way. We might, instead of having Persian loan words in the Hebrew text, we might have Hebrew loan words in Persian texts. If, if we open that possibility, then the time period of Solomon again becomes at least a plausible setting for the Song of Songs because of Solomon's contact with kings throughout the ancient world. As Kings tells us, Queen Sheba, wherever she's coming from, uh, comes with uh, an entourage with a lot of spices. Other kings come and have audiences with Solomon, and so there are. Uh, he has a lot of contact with uh, other kings and other nations. It seems uh, plausible that other nations would have picked up ideas, uh, customs, perhaps ling- language from Hebrew during Solomon's reign, when uh, Israel is a prominent in the in the region in the Eastern Mediterranean. 
So the direction of influence, uh, the, the linguistic argument, I think, can go either way. It's not decisive. Um, and I think that the dating of the book really turns on how we take the opening phrase and uh, claim that this is a song of songs, which is Solomon's. The, um, the Hebrew phrase is an alliterative phrase. Uh, the, the title, let me see if I can find it. Shir Hashrim Asher Lishlomo. Shir Hashrim, uh, Song of Songs, which is to Shlomo or Solomon. Shir Hashrim is a, is a superlative form. It's similar to uh, uh, Kodesh Kodeshim, which is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Um, uh, that, uh, a ver variation of that phrase is used to describe most holy food, for example, the book of Leviticus. But Song of Songs, uh, is that's the title that's given. The Song of Songs is a superlative term. It's the best possible song. It's the most songy song. As the Kodesh Kodeshim, the, the, uh, the Holy of Holies is the most holy place. This is the superlative song. Um, and that's followed by an attribution to Solomon. The, the phrase is Lishlomo, which could be, could be translated as for Solomon. It's the Song of Songs possibly written by someone else to celebrate Solomon. Uh, usually, Lishlomo, uh, a construction with that preposition in Hebrew, is used to attribute authorship. When you go to the Psalms, you find that the Psalms that are by David use that same preposition to, to identify authorship. The, the preposition usually means two or four, but it is used as a, uh, as an, as a, as a preposition for, for authorship in, elsewhere in the Bible. So I think the traditional view uh, that this is the Song of Songs which is written by Solomon. That's at least the claim of the first verse of the book. That is a, uh, uh, I think that's the right uh, reading of that phrase. Solomon appears se seven times in the book uh, and distributed at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the book. His name appears, I should say, at seven times. It appears right at the beginning in the first verse. It appears again in 1.5. Uh, so there's first two, uh, two uses right at the beginning of the book. And then Solomon is mentioned in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, and then again mentioned right at the end of the book. And the total number of uses of Solomon's name is 7. So you not only have this attribution to Solomon, but you have Solomon's name being used uh, periodically throughout the book in this kind of symmetrically structured manner. So that's the claim of the book. The, cl the book claims to be written by Solomon. Is that plausible? Uh, I think the, the, uh, the arguments for dating that come from the internal evidence and the, the uh, lang language and other, uh, other arguments of, like that, uh, of that sort are indecisive. I think we should take the claim of the book seriously that this is uh, written by Solomon. Uh, that's the way it's historically been taken. That's why it's grouped together, uh, among other reasons, it's why it's grouped together with Ecclesiastes and the Proverbs, both of which are wisdom books that come from, largely from the hand of Solomon. Um, and so I think the book was written by Solomon. The book is written during the period of Solomon. And the evidence that we have in the book, uh, I don't think anything decisively contradicts that. Um, and so I'll be thinking about it in terms of a song of Solomon written by Solomon in that time period. Um, what about the structure of the book? What is the book about? Uh, as I said, the, it's uh, superficially, a superficial reading would suggest that it's just a random collection of poems. It's not clear how the different parts fit together. Uh, sometimes you'll find interpretations that introduce a variety of different characters. You not only have a lover and a beloved, a man and a woman, but you definitely have uh, a collection of characters uh, who seem to be functioning as a kind of chorus. Uh, you have exhortations to the daughters of Jerusalem. 
uh, which uh, seemed to be another another cast of characters. Sometimes interpretations bring in yet other characters, uh, a rival lover, for example, so that Solomon is uh, vying for the love of his beloved with uh, someone else. He's he's in love with this woman who is a commoner. That's this is the this is the storyline that's uh, teased out of the song. Uh, the, uh, Solomon is in love with a commoner. And there's another commoner, a shepherd, a common shepherd, who's also in love with her. And Solomon the king is vying with this common shepherd for the love of the beloved. Those are hard to sustain. You can make it work, but uh, you, you, it's hard to sustain that kind of narrative. But I do think that there's an order to the book and in a couple of different ways. One is that it does seem that the book is, um, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. Um, the book is, I think, an allegory, and it's an allegory of Yahweh, in his love for Israel and of Israel's love for Yahweh. It's, it's a, uh, and in Christian terms, it's an allegory of Christ and the church. That's been the traditional reading throughout the history of Christianity uh, among the church fathers, among medieval theologians and biblical commentators, uh, among many Protestants as well have taken the, uh, taken the Song of Songs as an allegory of Christ and his church. I think there are other dimensions to the allegory that we'll talk about, but it's at least that. And if we look at it that way, then we can see, roughly see an order to the book, uh, and uh, Jewish commentators, uh, ancient Jewish commentators, uh, suggested that there is a sequence to the book that's basically running through the history of Israel. So you begin with uh, uh, Israel as the bride, longing for the presence of the bridegroom, and this is linked up with the uh, period of uh, 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 of Israel's sojourn in Egypt, longing for uh, the Exodus. Uh, in chapter two, the beloved arrives. Uh, comes to rescue the beloved and call the beloved out. That's seen as a reference to the Exodus. Uh, in chapter 3, the bride is in bed and discovers that her lover is gone. And so she goes out into the streets and squares looking for him. So after the, after the uh, deliverance of the bride and after the union of the bride and the bridegroom, then there's uh, a, a separation and uh, the, the bridegroom, the, the lover, is absent from the bride, from the bride's side, uh, and this could be some reference to you know uh, uh, to uh, Israel's experience during the time of the judges, for example, when the Lord abandoned her uh, to her idols, uh, or perhaps even more specifically to the period of uh, we have recounted in First Samuel, where the the Lord uh, gives up His tabernacle to the to Philistines, and uh, we have the son of one of the priests named Ichabod, the, the glory has departed, um, uh, and the, the Lord is absent from his people. Uh, right at the center of the book, uh, we have Solomon reappear, and from the middle of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 5, we have this pr procession, Solomon coming in, uh, Solomon coming in in this uh, traveling, co uh, traveling couch, in this uh, sedan chair, as it's called in the New American Standard, and he uh, comes and there's an encounter between the bride and the bridegroom that culminates with the two of them uh, in a garden, feasting on one another uh, in a feast of love. That's right at the beginning of chapter 5, and that's the center of the book. And that whole sequence with the name of Solomon and the description of his traveling couch suggests, the, uh, suggests a, a temple setting. And then the communion of the bride and the bridegroom together, uh, allegorically, that's uh, sometimes taken as a uh, description of Solomon as uh, Solomon's temple and the arrival of the Lord to commune with his bride in the temple. But as soon as that's uh, consummated in, or, or it comes to a climax in chapter 5, then again the bridegroom is gone. Uh, 
5-2, the bride again awakes, uh, finds that the bridegroom is absent. She again goes out into the streets and she again goes searching for her bridegroom. And so again, we have this, um, right after this, uh, this union of the bride and the bridegroom, we have this, uh, this, uh, this uh, absence, this separation. And so uh, again, allegorically, after the, the Lord is united with his people in the temple, of course, the history of Israel is that uh, they, they abuse the temple, they worship idols, the Lord eventually abandons his temple to destruction. Uh, and so we have this period of absence and separation. Uh, and then later in chapter 6 and 7, there's another encounter, the, the bride and the bridegroom again together. The beginning of chapter 7, you have uh, the bridegroom describing the bride and her beauty uh, that uh, shows that they are in face-to-face uh, -face with one another. So we again have this reunion that's, uh, again, like a restoration. It's a restoration from exile. It's a restoration from separation. And then you say the book climaxes with uh, what many take, and I think is correctly so, picks as a theme verse in 8.6, put me like a seal on your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is severe as shale. It fla its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yah. Uh, love is as strong as death, I think, is the theme of Israel's history. You say that's the theme of the Bible. Love triumphs over death. The love that is God triumphs over the grave. The love that is that God triumphs over the grave of exile for Israel. The love that is God tri triumphs over the grave in raising Jesus from the dead and raising us and bringing us new life. And that uh, that's a expression of the uh, passionate flame, the passionate fire of God's love for his people. So the book works, if you, at, a certain, at a certain level of abstraction, the book can be seen as an allegory that's roughly going through the history of Israel and the, uh, the rhythm of uh, separation, union, separation, reunion, and separation, so on, that you have throughout the Old Testament. That rhythm is the rhythm of the song. Uh, another uh, theme that runs through the whole book is the, uh, uh, the elevation of the bride. And this is where I think the, the, book, uh, the Song of Songs overlaps significantly with the structure of the uh, book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not, it's about the glorification of Jesus, but only indirectly. It's about the glorification of Jesus by the glorification of his people, by the glorification of his bride. And it's about the conformity of the bride through suffering to the glory of Jesus. Jesus is already glorified at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And the church goes through this, uh, this uh, period of trauma and martyrdom and suffering in order to become uh, and share in the glory of Jesus. So the, uh, the story of the book of Revelation in one respect is the, the glorification of the bride. I think the Song of Songs gives us a similar kind of uh, narrative line. At the beginning of the, the, beginning of the book, uh, the Song of Songs, the bride is speaking, I am black but lovely, this is 1-5, O daughters of Jerusalem. Verse 6, do not stare at me for, because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me, they made me a caretaker of the vineyards, but I, was not taking care, uh, I have not taken care of my own vineyard. So she's black but beautiful, she's uh, burned by the sun, her mother's sons made her caretaker of the vineyard, so she's being abused, and she's despised by her brothers and despised by, by, by others. By the time we get to the end of the book, though, we have a very different portrait of the bride. In chapter 6, verse 9, uh, this, is the, um, the lover <clears throat> this is the lover speaking, but my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of one who bore her. 
The maidens saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her, saying. So now the queens and concubines, instead of despising the bride, the beloved, are praising her, and they praise her as having a beauty that uh, takes on this kind of cosmic dimension. Um, chapter 6, verse 10, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? Um, earlier, in the, earlier in the book, uh, the bridegroom has his banner over the bride. His banner over me is love, she says. But now the bride herself is being described as an army with banners, having this kind of awesome beauty, this beauty like the moon, beauty like the sun. And those that praise is put in the mouth of the queens and the concubines. So she's moved from being a despised outcast to being elevated and to being glorified and being uh, regarded as um, possessing this, this kind of cosmic beauty by other, uh, by other women in the court. The other indication of her glorification is the name that she's given. It's often the love story that's in the Song of Songs is also often seen to be a love story between Solomon and the Shulamite, which is true. But uh, the, bri the bride, the beloved, is not called Shulamite through most of the book. In fact, she's not called Shulamite except right at the end of chapter 6. And it, that's right after the passage I was just reading where the queens and the concubines are praising her. Uh, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. Why should you, why should you gaze at the Shulamite? It's at the dance of the two companies. And then the, uh, we move into this poem where the, the uh, bridegroom is, is celebrating the beauty of his bride. Those are the only, that's the only verse, 613, it's the only verse where she's called the Shulamite. She's not the Shulamite at the beginning of the book. She becomes the Shulamite, or, or she receives that designation later in the book in connection with this elevation and this commendation of her beauty. Um, Shulamite is simply the feminine form of Shlomo, Solomon. Uh, she's, as, as Jim Jordan likes to say, she has become Mrs. Solomon. She's become the feminine image of Solomon. That's not what she is at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the book, again, she's black but lovely. lovely. She's despised. She's an outcast. But now she's praised, and she's become a uh, feminine equal to Solomon. So in that sense, the, the poem is about the I could say the Solomon, Solomonification of the bride, uh, the bride being conformed to the king, the bride becoming queen by sharing in the splendor of Solomon himself. Uh, the other structure that I want to suggest in the song is a more formal structure. Uh, it's a, I think it's a, more of a parallel structure than a chiasm. There have been a lot of different analyses, uh, structural analyses of the book, and sometimes scholars find chiasms. But I'm, in my mind, it's um, easier to take it as a, as, a, as a parallel structure. Although it does have this kind of inclusio, this kind of bracket around the whole book. The first section of uh, the song is chapter 1, verse 2 through 2, 7. And that's a dialogue back and forth between the two lovers. Uh, seven speeches, beginning with the bride, and then the bridegroom responds, and the bride, and the bridegroom, and so on. And then after that, there's this poem about the bridegroom coming like a gazelle, on the mountains. That's in the, um, he's described that way in chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. And that same imagery of the bridegroom as being like a gazelle on the mountains is what comes at the end of the book. Um, at the end of the book, the bride is longing for the coming of the bridegroom, like a gazelle on the mountains. Uh, hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the mountains of spices. Um, that's the same kind of imagery that's used in chapter 2. And so you have this 
the, the first section of the book climaxes with that, and the book as a whole climaxes with that. So you have kind of this bracket around uh, the book uh, that, uh, with a reference to those, uh, those uh, two animals and the comparison of the beloved to those, uh, of the lover to those two animals. Um, and then within that, you have a parallel sequence. In chapter three, the bride is on her bed. She discovers that the bridegroom is gone and she goes searching for him. Uh, then there's this, um, they're, they're united by, um, they're, they, become, they, they find each other, they're united, and the bridegroom celebrates the bride's beauty in chapter four, verses one through seven, in uh, a poetic form that uh, Hebrew scholars describe as a wasif, W-A-S-F. A wasif, is a, that's a term that comes out of uh, Egyptian poetry, and it's a, it's a kind of poem that uh, uh, describes the beauty, of, it's, it's, it comes from Egyptian love poetry, it's a kind of poem that describes the beauty of the, uh, the beloved from head to toe and back, or different features of the beloved. So uh, your eyes are like doves behind your veil, your hair is like a flock of goats, your teeth are uh, like a flock of newly shorn ewes, uh, your lips are like a scarlet thread, and so on. Uh, that is, uh, that's a wasif form. In, in English poetry, we call that a blazon, uh, and there's a long tradition of blazons and parodic blazons in uh, in English poetry. Uh, so uh, that's the, the fact that the bridegroom is describing his bride and describing her beauty shows that they've come together. So we've had this absence, then the two of them are together, and then we have this exhortation to the bride beginning in verse 8 of chapter 4 uh, to come out and join the bridegroom out in the springtime. So that's the first sequence. The lover's absence, the lover and the beloved are together, and uh, the, the lover calls on the bride to come out. Uh, then in chapter 5, verse 2, again, there's a separation. Again, the bride is in bed, uh, as she was at the beginning of chapter 3. The bride is in bed. She finds that the lover is gone, and she goes searching for him. And that culminates, again, with a wasif, the beginning of chapter 7. These are, Chapter 7 and chapter 4 are the two wasifs of the bridegroom describing the bride. Um, and um, again, is describing her from head to toe. It's more intimate. He describes, in this case, he describes her hips. Her face is no longer veiled, apparently. Uh, he describes her breasts, her belly. Uh, so there's a, there's a more intimate uh, description, suggestion, suggesting that the two lovers have become, have come closer together than they did in the first sequence. But it's still another wasp. So you move from, again, a separation when the bride is in bed uh, to a reunion that culminates with a wasif. And then uh, there is a call to the bridegroom to come out uh, in seven uh, eleven. Come, my beloved, let us go out to the country. And that's the beginning of the last of a section that goes through chapter eight, verse four. So we have within the, in the center of the book we have uh, two cycles of the same sequence: the bride is on her bed and the lover's absence. The two are reunited, and there's a wasif where the bridegroom is is celebrating the beauty of his bride, and then there's an exhortation to come and to uh, go from one to the other to go away. Now, at the center of the book, right at the center of the book, we have uh, chapter 4, verse 16, and uh, 5-1, uh, bridging the gap, bridging the chapter division. Those are the central verses, I think, 4-16 to 5-1. And that's the, uh, the one place where the two lovers are together in a garden. They're feasting, they're feasting on one another. Uh, this is the feast of love that's at the center of the book. So, and 
The first sequence culminates with that scene of consummation. The next sequence goes through the same series, but then actually culminates with the desire for reunion that isn't fulfilled. So the book ends with this kind of open-ended wish that the, that the beloved would come back and uh, be with the bride. Again, a similarity to the book of Revelation, with, which ends with a prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Uh, Revelation, although it comes, it brings the book of, it brings the Bible to, to a conclusion, still has this open-endedness where we're still longing for the coming of the bridegroom. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.